Shalom and welcome to Think Jewish, where we join together to explore spiritual answers for human questions. There is a very interesting history behind the teaching of the Rebbe that we are going to discuss. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lubavitch, towards the latter years of his life, had suffered from a stroke which made it difficult for Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak to orally deliver his esoteric teachings. Instead, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak would prepare the esoteric teaching in writing, and upon his request, the Rebbe, his son-in-law, would add footnotes and references, after which it was printed and dispersed. There were times when Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak would be working on a series of teachings that he would prepare the entire series and would date them for when they should be dispersed. In 1950, such a series based upon the verse, I have come to my garden, made up of four parts, each consisting of five chapters, was prepared. And each part was dated by Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak for dispersion. Beginning with the date of that Shabbat, the 10th day of the month of Shabbat. That Friday, the, the Rebbe brought his father-in-law, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, the printed discourse and it was dispersed to be studied over that Shabbat. The previous Rebbe returned his soul to his Maker on that Shabbat morning. One year later, on the 10th of Shabbat in 1951, the Rebbe began his public mimer based upon the first chapter of his father-in-law's mimer of 1950. That was the first Mimer that the Rebbe ever delivered publicly as a Rebbe. This has been the tradition of the previous Rebbes as well, to start their teachings with the last teaching of their predecessors. However, the Rebbe instituted something unprecedented in this tradition. The Rebbe went on year after year on the day of passing of his predecessor to deliver a Mimer based on the next chapter of Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak's last series of Maimorim. When the Rebbe finished the first cycle on the 10th of Shabbat in 1970, there's 20 chapters, so after 20 years the Rebbe finished the entire cycle. The next year the Rebbe continued on to the second cycle, which was finished in 1990. And the third cycle began in 1991. This year of 2016 is the year of Chapter 6 of the Rebbe Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak series, upon which we have from the Rebbe his discourses delivered in 1956 of the first cycle and in 1976 of the second cycle. Our discussion is based upon the Rebbe's Mimer of 1976. Being that we are focusing on the sixth chapter, let us first find the thread of the first five chapters. Our sages extrapolate from the opening verse that God is coming back to what already was His garden. He says, I am coming to my garden. It's already His garden, in which His presence was previously there. When God created the world, the world was filled with His presence. However, the sins of mankind, quoting the Talmud, pushes away the feet of the presence. 
And so it was that seven people with their seven sins pushed God, so to speak, out of his garden, causing God to ascend from earth to heaven and then into the higher dimensions of heaven until God's presence was to be found only in the seventh and highest dimension of heaven. The seven men and the seven sins are listed, of which the first two are Adam eating from the tree of knowledge and Cain killing Abel. And then it goes on to list another five people and their five sins. To understand this concept that this earth was the garden in which God's presence rested, let us ask ourselves, where exactly was the Garden of Eden in which lived Adam, Eve, the serpent that enticed Eve, and all the other animals that Adam gave names to? The story reads as a very practical and physical story in a location here on Earth. Where was this? Commentaries explain that the Garden of Eden was what would later become the land of Israel. God's presence there was what made it be the Garden of Eden experience. So in essence, even though the verse speaks of Adam and Eve being sent out of the Garden of Eden, and angels placed at its entrance to assure that Adam and Eve won't return, however, what we're really hearing now, what we're really learning now, is that Adam and Eve actually sent God out of the Garden of Eden. And with God, the Garden of Eden experience out of earth. The angels standing God at the entrance were making sure that Adam would not be able to re-enter the Garden of Eden experience until the sin and its effect upon earth would be corrected. With this change of earth's reality, that God was no more present here, that it was now tainted and unable to be the home of God's presence, the service of mankind changed. Now the primary focus was about tikkun olam, correcting the world, which demands two exercises. One, called iskafia, subduing the arrogance of rebellion, which, was, which has now become the tainted nature of earth and all its inhabitants, and B, the second exercise is, is hapcha, which means transforming the identity and the very fiber of the universe into absolute transparency to its true existence, which is the word of God by which it was created. As you remember, in Genesis, how did God create the world? He said, the verse says, and God said, let there be light, let there be. It was the word of God. That is the true existence of all creation. And an absolute transparency of will and commitment to its primary purpose of, in all your ways you shall know him, and in all your doings shall be for the sake of heaven. So we have here these two services that we need to now do to do the tikkun olam. We have the iskafia, subduing the ego arrogance of rebellion. And then we have his hapcha, transforming the very identity and the very fiber of the universe into absolute transparency. God was brought back to his garden of pleasure through seven people and their seven absolutely selfless lives, starting with Abraham, who brought the name and existence of God back upon the tongue and within the hearts of people, and culminating with Moses who built a physical house for God 
the tabernacle that traveled with the Jewish people and in the desert and eventually evolved into the holy temple of Ma upon Mount Moriah in Jerusalem by King David and King Solomon. However, even the work of Moses drawing God into the physical world was not complete. The mere fact that the Jewish people were able to create the golden calf and that exile, persecution, war, and suffering still exists tells us that God is yet to return his entire presence and is yet to return the world to the deepest experience of Eden on earth. Thus, the primary two services of Iskafia and Ishapcha continue in our quest to bring Mashiach and absolute perfection to the universe. We turn to see how Moses built the tabernacle and, the, and to the primary services that was performed within the tabernacle in order for us to understand the service of his kafya subduing and his hapcha transforming. Thus, the chapters turn to understanding the spiritual service of bringing sacrifices, which is all about bringing our own inner animal upon the altar of God, subduing our inner animal's egocentric passion, and then transforming it into a blazing fiery love and passion for God. So too we then explore how Moses made the walls of the tabernacle from trees called Atze Shittim. Literally, this is acacia wood. The word Shittim can also be derived from the word Shtut, which in Hebrew means folly, foolishness, which brings to mind the Talmudic teaching of the great sage Resh Lakish, who taught, a man does not sin unless a, a spirit of folly has entered into him. I was once at a lecture given by Gary Newman, author of Emotional Infidelity, in which he said, every irrational behavior has an emotional reason. Now, this illogical reason can be of pure and holy selfless commitment, or it can be of arrogant and dishonest selfishness. The first is holy shtut, while the latter is of impure shtut. Moses, by building the walls of the tabernacle out of beams of atze shitim, the word shitim means folly, foolishness, was performing first the iskafia of subduing our arrogant and self-seeking illogical spirit of folly, and then he was doing ishapcha, transforming it to become the very walls of our transrational, the holy folly, commitment to God. Our chapter, which is number six, focuses on what kind of wood the walls of the tabernacle were made up of. Chapter six focuses on the very concept of a beam and the word that the Torah uses for it, keresh, the word used for beam is spelled with three Hebrew letters, the kuf, the resh, and the shin. These three letters, when rearranged, spell out the Hebrew word of sheker, which means lies, falsehood. And thus again we see how the service subduing and the transforming the ego, self, egocentric self-seeking dishonesty and the selfishness of our inner animal, the sheker, 
is what building a physical home for God, the Keresh, is all about. Iskafya and Ishapcha is the only way to draw the ultimate essence of God back into the world in total fulfillment of I came to my garden. This chapter 6 explores how the transformation of these letters happen. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak of Lavavich first quotes the Kabbalistic teaching that the divine letters Reish and Kuf are letters used to provide sustenance for the other side, the Kabbalistic terminology for evil. Even the letter Shin that has a strong base and whose three heads represent Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, over here it is being kidnapped by the dishonesty of the letters Reish and Kuf. Why would they kidnap the letter Shin? Because we have a rule. Any lie that has no strain of truth to it does not stand. Thus they needed to kidnap the Shin to be able to make themselves exist. The letters of holiness that are equivalent to the Reish and Kuf are the letters Dalid is equivalent to Reish and He to Kuf. Let's look at the difference between them. The difference between the Reish and the Dalid is that the Reish is round on the top while the Dalid is square on the top. Meaning that if you add a dot, a little letter Yud, to the top back of the Reish in it becomes a Dalid. The difference between the Kuf and the He is that the leg of the Kuf, the left leg of the Kuf, descends a lot while by the hay, both legs, right and left, are even. Meaning that we must be careful to make sure that our actions, the left leg, do not descend below into the nether domain, but that re it remains in sync with our spiritual thoughts and speech. The main focus of our class is going to be on the Resh and the Dalid, which is the smallest letter, the dot, which is called a Yud, empowering the Dalit. So really, that's what the Dalit is. The Dalit is just like the Reish, but it's being empowered by that dot, that Yud. Both letters of Dalit and Reish in Kabbalah represent poverty, as they each begin the word for poverty in Hebrew. Dalit is Dalus, and Reish is Rosh. And both Dalit and Rosh means poor in Hebrew. However, there are two opposite spiritual manifestations of poverty. One is the poverty of spirituality and holiness. This is the Reish. The other is the poverty of ego, true abnegation of any self-identity of ego or arrogance. As Abraham said, I am but dust and ashes. This is the Dalit. For the Yud, the smallest of all letters, a dot, represents humility, and the Dalit is powered by the Yud. So we have the Reish being poor, poverty, in the sense that it has no spirituality and holiness. We have the Dalit being poor, in the sense that it is empty of arrogance and ego. One last introduction, and in this lecture, the introduction is 75% of the lecture, is to understand the universe on a binary code level. The entire universe is made up of yesh and ayin, which in Latin would be ex and nihilo. And in simple English it would be 
somethingness and nothingness. Now, while in the truth of truth, God is the only true something, and the universe in the face of God is all truly nothing, however, in the truth of the universe's paradigm, God planted it to be the opposite. By God first completely concealing himself before beginning creating anything, God created the universe to see itself as the only somethingness which struggles with the nothingness of God to the point where having a relationship with this nothingness was referred to by Karl Marx as the opium of the masses. He goes on to say, the abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is required for their real happiness. The demand to give up the delusion about its condition is the demand to give up a condition which needs illusions. That's how much God hid himself from us, planting in our paradigm that we are something and we struggle with this nothingness of God. What we are here to discuss tonight is how are we to overcome the paradox of a something which defines itself as the only somethingness that exists. How can we overcome that paradox of this something having a relationship with nothing, which within the parameters of what we call a something, God's defying these parameters leave him to be absolutely nothingness in our paradigm. We have certain parameters of what we define to be a something, God defies all these parameters. He defies space, he defies time, he defies description. And therefore we truly, in our paradigm, see God as truly nothingness. How can we as a something have a relationship with a nothing? Better said, with which tools of our somethingness can we connect to God? The characteristics of human intellect demand the intellectual process of divide and conquer as we divide the totality of any intellectual concept and conquer it detail by detail, aspect by aspect. God defies details and aspects to be divided and conquered by the human mind. So how, how, which faculty of our being are we going to use as a something to connect with God as a nothing? Thus, we return to the binary code of the universe, in which we are the yesh, the something, and God is the ayin, the nothing. And therefore, we now see, the only way for us to connect to God is to leave our somethingness, the ego, the self-identity as the only true something, and to open up and embrace nothingness, humility, total abnegation of being the something. Thus we now understand why the humility of the Yud is what defines the Dalit as a letter of holiness. By the absence of the Yud is what defines the Reish as a letter, as a conduit to the other side of impurity. Humbleness is the only foundation to a connection with God and ego is the lock on our prison cell of loneliness and separation from God and holiness. Yet, God created us as a something with specific faculties 
of intellect and emotions so that we can absorb, digest, and connect with God also within the reality of our somethingness. For example, and this is not just a side example, but the ultimate example of ultimate oneness with God. Studying Torah demands for us to roll up our sleeves, so to speak, and intellectually engage, dissect, question, and understand what the Torah is saying. If we sit in front of a book of the Talmud with the total emptiness of humility and nothingness, this is not called learning Torah, and it is forbidden to make the blessings of Torah study upon such a studying of Torah. Thus, while the humility of Yud is the foundation of any relationship with God, nevertheless, there must also be the human engagement of the other two lines of thought and speech for the human to experience the reality of his connection with God within the human realm of existence. So yes, it all begins with humility. Without that, we can't even enter into the arena of having a relationship with God. However, we need to also engage our faculties to understand. Now we can enter into the Rebbe's deep teaching upon all of this in his Mimer of 1976, where the Rebbe explores layers of humility, which defines layers of our relationship with God. Human intellect is made up of the two halves of the brain, which spiritually speaking define themselves as two different forms of intellect with total different forms of processing. The right half is called the intellect of wisdom, while the left side is the intellect of understanding. What we spoke about before, that the human intellectual process is all about divide and conquer, refers to the intellect of understanding, in which the separation and distinction of every detail separately is how understanding conquers and digests any intellectual concept. However, the intellect of wisdom works on a very different plane and through a very different processing system. Wisdom is more the intellect format of an artist, such as a painter, a musician, or a writer, while understanding is more the intellectual format of a professional, such as a lawyer or an accountant. The difference between the two categories is not just in their talents, but in the way they perceive reality. Watch the way an artist tries to formulate a piece of creativity within his mind. And then, watch how a lawyer builds his case. You will witness two different intellectual processes at work. The artist is driven by and engaging with the intellect of wisdom, while the lawyer is driven by and is engaging with the intellect of understanding. To engage with wisdom, one sheds, just as such through meditation, while to connect with understanding, one engages. When connecting with wisdom, one leans back and opens his active, his mind to a greater conscious, waiting for something to drop from his higher conscious into his active mind. When connecting with understanding, one leans forward, pouring over all the details again and again, defining them clearer and clearer within his active mind. Thus, there are two layers of humility right here. While understanding also demands a silencing of the ego, passion, and emotions, however, it demands the ego of the intellectual processing. 
wisdom demands a greater level of humility in which even the ego of the mind needs to be silenced. Our sages tell us of a story of how Rabbi Zera, a Babylonian outstanding sage of Babylon Talmud, went up to Israel to study under the great sages of the Jerusalem Talmud. Rabbi Zera struggled to understand the Jerusalem Talmud. He just couldn't. Until he fasted a hundred fasts in prayer to forget the Babylonian Talmud so that he may understand the Jerusalem Talmud. Why did he have to forget the Babylonian Talmud in order to understand the Jerusalem Talmud? Does not lower intellect prepare you for the higher intellect? Take for example math. Simple mathematics prepares you for algebra which prepares you for the next level. And the, it, one leads to the other. Why would Rabzeira have to forget the Babylonian Talmud, an amazing intellectual process, in order to understand the Jerusalem Talmud? The answer is that he was, he was fasting to forget the thought process of the Babylonian Talmud in order to be able to embrace the thought process of Jerusalem Talmud. The thought process of the Babylonian Talmud is a process of elimination. It is the intellect of understanding, while the process of the Jerusalem Talmud was opening up to a higher conscious, and it is the intellect of wisdom. The intellect of the Babylonian Talmud isn't the preparation for the intellect of the Jerusalem Talmud, because one isn't greater than the other just in quantity and quality. Rather, they are two completely different intellects. Thus, the Babylonian Talmud actually interfered with understanding the Jerusalem Talmud. This will also explain why Rabzera fasted. Why did he have to fast? He could have just prayed. Fasting, Maimonides teaches us, is all about bringing ourselves to humility. Fasting helps us break the ego. Rabbi Zera, even though he already embodied the humility needed for the understanding of the Babylonian Talmud, he now had to have a greater layer of humility to receive the wisdom of the Jerusalem Talmud. So there you have the first two layers, the difference between understanding and wisdom. There are two different layers of humility which bring us to two different layers of relationship. We will now see that within wisdom itself there are two layers. In the teachings of Kabbalah and Hasidus, we see every faculty being made up of two dimensions. There is the outer dimension, which is the layer of expression, in which the faculty is expressing itself to the faculty beneath it. Then there is the inner dimension of the faculty, in which it stands separated from the faculty beneath it. For example, even when a lawyer builds his case, there is the nucleus of the case, the nucleus of what he is trying to accomplish, from which he will then go on to process all the proceedings of the case. This nucleus is the wisdom feeding the one core vision to understanding, which will then process this core wisdom vision into understanding details. That's how a lawyer works. Anyone work, working the process of understanding first has a wisdom core of vision, but
but that wisdom core vision is all about being able to then bring it into the details of understanding being that this wisdom has to feed the process of understanding it therefore by nature needs to be less of the abstract nature and more of the tangible nature thus this outer dimension of wisdom embodies ego and is less humble than the inner dimension of wisdom which seeks not the core to a process but the far deeper core as it is unto itself thus Within wisdom itself, there are two layers of humility, each embracing a different relationship with God through God's Holy Torah. There is an understanding of the core wisdom of the law, and there is an opening up to the wisdom of the light of divinity within the Torah, not as it serves to the core processing of understanding a law. So there we go, within wisdom itself, we have now two layers of humility, both affording us a different layer of a relationship with God. Even the inner dimension of wisdom, however, lacks within its searching for relationship with God. Wisdom is searching for the light of divinity as it shines and expresses itself to wisdom. Thus we have right here two liabilities of wisdom. A. It is searching for the light rather than for the essence source. Why is wisdom searching for the light of God? It should be searching for God. B. It is searching for the outer dimension of the light as the light of divinity is expressing itself to wisdom rather than just the light of divinity as it is unto itself. The reason for these two liabilities of wisdom is the ego of wisdom which is still looking for what God means to him. In other words, what God gives to him. Wisdom can only relate to the light of God. And even this is only as the light of God expresses itself to wisdom. Thus the ego of wisdom keeps wisdom stuck within having only a relationship with the layer of God that it can appreciate and relate to. It cannot relate to the light of God beyond revelation. And it definitely cannot relate to God, relate to God as the, quote, the verse says, You who dwells in the shelter of Most High who abides in the shadow. In other words, if I'm looking for a relationship with God just based upon my wisdom and the needs of my wisdom, I will only be able to relate to that of God which reveals itself to my wisdom, which breathes into my creativity. So while that's greater than just understanding the details, however, even wisdom is stuck within, I can only have a God that I can relate to. And wisdom can only relate to the light of God and only as the light of God expresses and reveals itself to wisdom. Where are we going to find a relationship with A, the light of God as it stands unto itself, and B, the essence of God, not the light of God, not just the light of God. For this we must turn to the supernal crown of our soul, who seeks not any identity of its own, but rather is defined as, I'm going to quote this from Kabbalah, 
a spark of creator made into a creation that's what it is it's just a spark of creator that's how it sees its identity even in the supernal crown however there are two dimensions the outer dimension and the inner dimension the outer dimension of the supernal crown of my soul relates to the light of divinity as it exists within itself from which the supernal crown will then adorn and feed wisdom with the revelation of the light of divinity as it shines to outwards to sustain creation so even the supernal crown the outer dimension relates to the light of divinity true the light of divinity as it stands for itself but it's going to relate to that light of divinity and feed from it the revelation of that light to wisdom so where do we have a relationship with God not the light not the way it expresses itself not even the way it stands for itself the answer is the inner dimension of the supernal crown is the core essence of the soul known in Kabbalah and Hasidis as Yechida which means oneness and is known in jargon as the Pintalayid. The Pintalayid is the embodiment of absolute abnegation of any self-identity of its own other than being of God. It has absolutely no self-seeking and is therefore open to a relationship with you who dwells in the shelter of Most High, who abides in the shadow. So ultimately speaking, what you're hearing over here is that it's only the Pintalayid within our soul that has the absolute capacity of being in a relationship that does not ask what are you doing for me and therefore only the Pintalayid is completely open to have a relationship with God as God as he dwells in the shelter of Most High who abides in the shadow no revelation it's just God the Pintalayid has the power to have a relationship with God this is where we have a relationship with the absolute essence of God which states I have come to my garden in closing this is great levels we're talking about here let's talk about it on a practical level in closing our generation of the greatest social media that ever existed is by and large plagued with a deeper loneliness that ever existed wow a paradox if I've ever heard of one we more than any generation prior are crying out to others that they make us whole to make us feel valuable and to make us feel cherished and deserving we're lonely we're crying out to others make me feel worthy in addiction recovery which deals with this loneliness as it has totally manifested itself in ugliness and destroyed the life of a person in recovery we speak about the only answer is quote find God or die a rough saying but it's a rough situation let's be practical here the average person cannot live life on the inner dimension of the supernal crown that Pintalayid 
that was Moses on Mount Sinai with God for 40 days and 40 nights without e eating or sleeping. Not a human experience at all for the average person. However, within each and every one of us, there is that Moses, that Yechida, that Pintalayid. It was given to us by God as the king gives his foot soldiers the greatest artillery that he has. Yes, on the one hand, we're only foot soldiers. We're not Moses. We're not capable of being on a mountain without eating or sleeping or drinking for 40 days, just basking in the cloud of glory of God. But on the other hand, it's us foot soldiers that are out there on the front line. And the king gives us this pintalayid, which is the greatest artillery that God has to give us to have the ultimate connection with God. We just need to know that this pintalayid exists within us and we need to tap into it so that we can experience our connection with the ultimate nothingness, which in turn makes us one with the absolute something of the absolute truth of truth. So, again, practically speaking, we need to know that we have within us a Pintalayid who's capable of looking up to God and saying nothing about God. Where are you? What have you done for me? I need you. Rather, that Pintalayid that gives each and every one of us those amazing beautiful moments not every minute but amazing beautiful moments of looking up to God and instead of asking God where are you instead we say to God Hineni I am here that is where we can really embrace the essence of God and totally embrace that God has come to the garden and we can totally let go of loneliness. I am worthy. I am something. I am made whole by having the relationship with God. The absolute, honest, selfless, no self-seeking relationship of Hineni. I am here, dear God. So, one should always remember that while the early bird gets the worm, the early worm gets eaten. Therefore, always live within your higher consciousness. <laughs>